0: Hi there, it's Lainey. We at ParCast want to thank all of you for your continuing support throughout the year. ParCast could not be what it is today without you. We also wanted to give you a heads up that we're taking a break for the holidays and we won't be back until after the new year. But since the season is all about giving, we do have something special lined up for the next two weeks, so be sure to tune in. In the meantime, enjoy the season and we'll be back the first week in January with your regular programming. Have a happy and safe new year. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 24-year-old Jennifer Pan sat in the white-walled interrogation room with her head in her hands. It was almost 3 o'clock in the morning, and she was exhausted. Just hours earlier, three armed men had taken Jennifer and her parents hostage in their Toronto home. While she managed to escape unharmed, her parents hadn't been so lucky. Now she had to recount the nightmare, moment by moment, to the stern detective sitting in front of her. She started by detailing the events of the day leading up to the home invasion. When the conversation veered towards the fate of her mother, Jennifer broke down. Her voice crackled with sorrow and she began to bawl. The interrogating officer offered her a box of tissues and she carefully took one. As she continued her story, a detective in a neighboring room carefully watched Jennifer dab at her eyes. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. Though Jennifer made a show of weeping for her mother, there were no actual tears running down her face. She wasn't crying at all. Hi, I'm Leenie Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we detailed how Jennifer Pan's overbearing tiger parents try to control every aspect of her life. When she failed to live up to their unforgiving expectations, she turned to a life of deception to keep her failing grades and forbidden romance under wraps. This week... We'll detail Jennifer's sinister scheme to break free from her parents' grasp once and for all. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man they headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita
0: vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her but that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents, She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. In the spring of 2010, 23-year-old Jennifer Pan was nearing her breaking point. Her parents, Han and Bick, had discovered that she'd been secretly playing house with her boyfriend, Daniel Wong, for years instead of pursuing a career in pharmacology. Her father was prepared to disown her, but decided to offer her an ultimatum instead. She was forced to choose between her parents and her boyfriend. Put on the spot, Jennifer chose her family. But after so many lies, Han and Bick wouldn't just take her word that she had cut ties with Daniel. They forced Jennifer under strict house arrest, all but cut off from the outside world. She wasn't even allowed out of her room without their permission. For his part, Daniel had decided that Jennifer's constant drama was too much to bear. He moved on and started seeing another woman soon after they broke up. With nobody else to lean on, Jennifer rekindled old friendships in search of a connection. She became especially close to a former classmate, Andrew Montemayor. Over late night calls and Facebook messages, Andrew and Jennifer shared the most intimate details of their lives with one another. Jennifer vented about her cruel father, his unforgiving rules, and how she longed to get out from under his thumb. Andrew listened intently, offering his sympathies and advice. His first suggestion was one Jennifer had heard before, that she cut ties with her parents for good. She was 23, old enough to start life on her own, But for jennifer that simply wasn't an option she felt it would be shameful to leave her family out of the blue she also didn't want to leave her mother behind the more she thought about it the more she blamed Han for everything that had gone wrong in her life she wanted him gone andrew understood how she felt at one point in his life he told her he hated his own father so much that he seriously considered killing the man With that, Jennifer suddenly realized the solution to all of her problems. If her father was out of the picture, she could get her freedom back without embarrassing the family. Before we go any further, please note that the following information is based on Jennifer's testimony. The other parties involved deny any wrongdoing and dispute her account. After talking it over with Andrew, Jennifer started looking for a hitman to murder her father. According to her, Andrew and his roommate, Ricardo Duncan, had committed armed robbery before. Andrew supposedly assured Jennifer that murder would be no problem for someone like Ricardo. In June of 2010, Andrew introduced the two at a bustling bubble tea cafe. Jennifer sat across from a young black man who she described as really gothic, with painted fingernails and dark eyes. As nearby patrons chatted away, she asked Ricardo to shoot her father in the parking lot of his workplace and make it look like a random attack. About a week later, the two met again at a nearby coffee shop. There, Jennifer gave Ricardo more details about Han, as well as $1,500 to purchase a gun and carry out the hit. After that, weeks passed with no communication from Ricardo. When Jennifer reached out to Andrew for help, he told her that Ricardo had vanished. She had been duped. Andrew and Ricardo have adamantly denied any involvement in the murder-for-hire agreement, as well as any late-night muggings. They both acknowledged, however, that Jennifer openly spoke about wanting her father killed. Ricardo also admitted to accepting $200 from Jennifer, but testified that it was merely a kind gesture so that he could go out with his friends. He further confessed that while Jennifer had pressured him to kill her father, he immediately refused. He felt that the only reason she asked him to commit the murder was because of the color of his skin. Disturbed and offended, Ricardo ended all communication with Jennifer by July of 2010. Feeling deceived and let down, Jennifer once again felt like she had no one to turn to. She once again yearned for her ex-boyfriend, 24-year-old Daniel Wong. But as he was still dating another woman, Jennifer decided she had to play it smart. Whenever she found a moment alone, away from the prying eyes of her parents, she sent Daniel intimate text messages and photos. The sex definitely aroused some interest, but Daniel was still unwilling to take Jennifer back. Not one to back down from a challenge, she tried another tactic. Daniel suddenly started receiving a string of prank calls and messages from an unknown number. Over time, the messages grew increasingly disturbing. The anonymous sender taunted him and threatened to reveal intimate details of his past and present relationships. Well aware that Jennifer wanted him for herself, Daniel confronted her about the calls. As usual, Jennifer lied, swearing she had nothing to do with them. In fact, she told Daniel that she received a barrage of frightening messages as well. She claimed she was afraid for her very life. While Daniel knew Jennifer was a practice liar, he never believed that she would lie to him. They'd dated for seven long years and they'd always been open and honest with each other. Unfortunately, he was wrong. Now things were different. Jennifer was willing to do whatever it took to get what she wanted. Before I continue with her psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Considering the magnitude of Jennifer's lies, psychologist Barbara Greenberg has stated that Jennifer may have developed untreated antisocial personality disorder or ASPD. According to the DSM-5, ASPD is a mental health condition characterized by a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others. People with ASPD often fail to conform to social norms, tend to use deceitfulness for personal gain, and care little for the feelings of others. If it meant getting Daniel back, Jennifer was more than willing to manipulate him, She knew that although he had moved on to a new relationship, he still cared for her deeply. During his senior year of high school, when he had been arrested for dealing drugs, she stood by his side while others called him a criminal. She believed in him, and so it was only right that he believed in her now. He didn't question Jennifer when she denied being behind the mysterious texts and calls. Meanwhile, the messages were growing more disturbing by the day. One text to Daniel threatened to harm Jennifer. It read, We've sent something to her house. The next time she opens it, boom. Daniel panicked, immediately calling her to ask if she'd received a package. When Jennifer confirmed that she had, he begged her not to open it, and she promised to take the parcel directly to the police. She even told Daniel that the authorities were investigating the matter. None of it was was true. Jennifer's lies became downright pathological as the weeks passed. At some point in the summer of 2010, she told Daniel that after going on a jog, she'd return home to find five Asian gang members waiting for her. She claimed the men forced their way inside the house, covered her eyes, and repeatedly sexually assaulted her. According to Jennifer, her mother had already taken her to the hospital, and the police were on the case. Daniel was at a loss for words. The story was nearly impossible to process. He had never known Jennifer to be involved in criminal activity of any kind. There was simply no plausible reason for her to be the target of a gang attack. But while he questioned the details of her story internally, he didn't want to accuse her of making up something so horrific. He was hesitant to go to the police himself, because he worried they would look into his own criminal past and possibly view him as a suspect. Jennifer knew just how to play on Daniel's sympathies. He again chose to believe her over his better judgment and tried to be there for her in any way he could. He started spending less time with his girlfriend to comfort Jennifer on the phone and in person. Over time, his romantic feelings for her re-emerged. Acutely aware that Han and Bick screened his calls, Daniel worried that they would take away Jennifer's cell phone at any moment. So, later that August, he gave Jennifer a spare iPhone. He wanted to be able to keep tabs on her to make sure that she was safe. By August of 2010, 24-year-old Jennifer was sure Daniel would break up with his girlfriend and come running back to her soon. Now, the only thing standing in the way of her happiness were her overbearing parents. She had to get rid of them. On August 16, 2010, Jennifer told Daniel about a plot that would change their lives forever. While the initial plan to kill her father, Han, had ended in disaster, she had spent the rest of the summer perfecting her scheme. She planned to hire a team of hitmen to break into the Pan family home murder her parents, and make it look like a robbery had gone horribly wrong. All she needed was Daniel's connection to Toronto's criminal underbelly to find someone to take the job. Daniel couldn't believe what she was asking. He was overwhelmed. After a five-hour conversation, he spent the next two days avoiding over 100 calls and text messages from Jennifer. but she always got her way in the end. On August 18th, she finally convinced Daniel to give her what she wanted. He passed on the name and number of one of his closest confidants in Toronto's drug scene, a dangerous man he called homeboy. Coming up, Jennifer plots murder. Hi, Parcasters! If you haven't had a chance to check out the playful new podcast, Blind Dating, now's the time to binge what you've missed before catching all new episodes every Wednesday. In this Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Join host Tara Michelle as she introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio will get to know one another without the distraction of appearances. But in the end, is personality enough for these strangers to fall head over heels? Or once the cameras are turned on, will they head for the hills? Connect with new episodes of Blind Dating every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On August 18, 2010, 24-year-old Jennifer Pan convinced her ex-boyfriend, Daniel Wong, to put her into contact with a man who could help her kill her parents. Jennifer called the man who Daniel knew as Homeboy that same day. Over the phone, she and Homeboy conspired to kill her father, 57-year-old Han, and her mother, 53-year-old Bick, in their Toronto home. Unwilling to pull the trigger himself, Homeboy acted only as a middleman. He promised to recruit the hitmen. All Jennifer had to do was pay up. Although the exact amount is unknown, it's believed that the fee to kill both of her parents was upwards of $10,000. Months earlier, Jennifer had only been interested in murdering her father. But lately, Bick had been the one controlling her life while Han was at work. As a result, it's possible that the relationship between Jennifer and her mother had grown more contentious. It's also possible that Jennifer opted to kill both of them to cash in on her parents' life insurance policies. At some point, Hannah and Bick told Jennifer that upon their deaths, she and her younger brother Felix would have equal share of their $170,000 policy, as well as their overall estate. Everything combined— The Pan siblings would split a fortune close to $1 million, money she could use to pay for the hit. By the end of October, Homeboy had found three men desperate enough to kill. All parties agreed to the terms, and the hit was scheduled for November 3rd. But the night before the attack, Daniel got cold feet. Through text messages, he told Jennifer that he loved his current girlfriend. The deaths of Han and Bick wouldn't change that. In response, Jennifer called the whole thing off at the last minute. While she hated her parents and wanted them gone, she didn't want to be alone. If Daniel was unwilling to commit to a relationship, there was no point in going through with murder. Unfortunately for Han and Bick, Daniel changed his mind again the very next day. He and Jennifer rekindled their romance and her parents' deaths were rescheduled for November 8th, 2010. That night, 53-year-old Big Pan lounged on the couch in her favorite pair of Winnie the Pooh pajamas. She had just returned home from her weekly dance class and was soaking her feet in a bowl of warm water. While she caught up on the evening news through a Chinese television network, her daughter crept down the stairs and unlocked the front door. Vic bade her daughter a quick goodnight. Then, Jennifer hurried back upstairs, stopping inside the family study to flip the lights on and off several times. That was the signal. About a quarter past 10 o'clock, 57-year-old Han Pan was startled awake. He opened his eyes to find he was staring down the barrel of a gun. The assailant, whose face was partially obstructed by an oversized baseball cap, demanded to know where he kept his money. Han tried his best to answer, but his English failed him and he struggled to explain. Annoyed, Han's attacker forced him out of the master bedroom. As they made their way across the second floor landing, Han heard Jennifer speaking to a second assailant. There was no fear in her voice. In fact, she spoke to the man as if they were friends. Before Han could dwell on the matter, he was ushered down the stairs into the first floor living room. To his horror, he saw a third man was holding Bick hostage on the couch. The gunman again demanded to know where the pans kept their money. Han tried to explain that somewhere upstairs he had $60 in his wallet. The family had been burglarized once before, and they knew better than to keep large sums of cash at home. But he promised that there were plenty of valuables in the house worth taking. One of the men called him a liar and smashed Han on the side of his head with the gun. Bic screamed as blood trickled down her husband's face. She pleaded with the gunmen, shouting, Please, you can hurt us, but please don't hurt my daughter. The men told Bick that her daughter wouldn't be harmed, but she was far from reassured. Minutes later, she and Han were led down to the basement. There, they were forced onto a couch while their captors attempted to throw heavy blankets over their heads. Resigned to his fate, Han didn't struggle. Bick, however, screamed in protest and threw the blanket off of her. Even with a gun in her face, she was defiant. Though her reaction may seem shocking, it's important to remember that Bick likely believed that the assailants were only there for her money. She may not have felt her life was truly at risk. Between the years 1977 and 1979, criminologist Mike McGuire interviewed over 300 victims of burglary. Through his research, he found that the most common reaction to burglary was one of anger or annoyance. Bick's combative attitude is thus not unusual. Unfortunately, the men didn't just want her belongings, they wanted her life. After Bick threw the blanket to the ground, one of the gunmen fired two shots at her husband. The first bullet ripped through the heavy blanket and went straight into his face, the second pierced his shoulder. Bick watched in terror as her husband slumped onto the ground and blood pooled beneath his body. Moments later, she was shot in the neck, the shoulder, and finally the head. She died instantly. The men went upstairs, leaving Han and Bick bleeding on the ground, Then one of them tied Jennifer to the second floor balcony at her instruction to make it look like she was a victim too. Based on a neighbor's grainy security footage, by 10.33 p.m., all three men had departed the Pan family home and sped off and attended Acura. As soon as they were gone, Jennifer maneuvered her phone out of her pocket and called the Markham police. She told them her home had just been burglarized and that she'd heard gunshots downstairs. She was tied up and couldn't move. She needed help. As the operator talked to Jennifer, Han slowly regained consciousness. Thanks to the thick blanket that the assailants had used to cover his face, he had miraculously survived a point-blank shot to the head. When he saw Bick lying next to him, Han broke down. He tried shaking her awake, but it was no use. The love of his life was dead. Fueled by fear, agony, and adrenaline, he sprinted up the stairs. Jennifer heard her father moving downstairs and yelled out to him while she was on the phone. Rather than checking to see if she was okay, Han ran out the front door without his daughter. Fortunately, his next-door neighbor, Peter Chung, was just about to leave for work as Han staggered outside, covered in blood. Han begged Peter to call the police before collapsing on the lawn. Within minutes, authorities arrived at the scene. After clearing the premises, they cut Jennifer loose upstairs. Han was taken to the hospital in critical condition. While he fought for his life in an emergency room, Jennifer was taken to the Markham police station for questioning around 3 a.m. When asked to describe the perpetrators, Jennifer claimed that at least two were black men in their late 20s. While she said she hadn't gotten a good look at the third assailant, she alleged he had a distinct Caribbean accent, implying he was also black. She believed that they let her live because unlike her parents, she'd been cooperative. Investigators found the theory hard to swallow. Cold-blooded murderers didn't usually leave witnesses behind, especially ones that were able to provide them with detailed physical descriptions. Though the men had tied her to the second floor banister, she didn't have a scratch on her body. As Jennifer continued to recount the events leading to her rescue, one of the detectives noticed something unsettling. Whenever she spoke of her late mother, Bick, Jennifer wailed as if she was crying, but upon closer inspection, she hadn't shed a single tear. Stay with us as Jennifer's sworn testimony unravels. Now, back to the story. On the evening of November 8th, 2010, three armed men broke into the Pan family home on a mission to murder. While 53-year-old Bik Ha Pan was shot and killed instantly, her husband, 57-year-old Hui Han Pan, was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. Their 24-year-old daughter, Jennifer Pan, had masterminded it all. Markham police questioned Jennifer in the early morning hours of November 9th. It didn't take long for them to become suspicious of her story especially because she appeared to be pretending to cry when she recounted the attack. Officers acknowledged that Jennifer's odd behavior might simply be due to shock. It wasn't uncommon for victims of trauma to have difficulty expressing their emotions. But then why would she make a show of weeping when she clearly wasn't? A 2020 study published in the Frontiers and Psychology Journal shed some light on why authorities may have fixated on Jennifer's false tears. The research investigated the impact crying can have on the way an audience perceives an individual in need. Criers who were deemed to be expressing genuine emotion were perceived to be more reliable and honest. As a result, they were more likely to receive emotional support. In contrast, individuals who seemed to be producing phony, crocodile tears were perceived as significantly more manipulative, less reliable, less warm, and less competent. Jennifer likely hoped that by breaking down and crying, she could play on the sympathies of police officers. Unfortunately, her obviously inauthentic performance only made her seem like a less reliable witness. Even so, authorities weren't ready to designate Jennifer as their prime suspect. Given the Pan family's wealth, they thought Han or Bick might've had connections to illicit gambling or drug trafficking. Perhaps they were murdered for crossing the wrong man or not paying off their debts. However, it only took a cursory investigation to discount this possibility. After looking into their finances, it was clear to all that Han and Bick were upright citizens. When they arrived on the shores of Canada as Vietnamese asylum seekers years before, they had nothing to their name. Now in 2010, after decades of hard work, they were sitting on a completely legitimate fortune. Investigators next speculated that the gunman had simply noticed the family's flashy cars and assumed Han and Bick had mounds of cash stashed somewhere in their home. It seemed unlikely, but nothing else fit It was highly unusual for burglars to commit murder on a whim. There had to be a stronger motive they were missing. While authorities continued to look into the case, Jennifer was taken to the intensive care unit to wait by her father's bedside with her extended family. A doctor informed her that the bullets had all miraculously missed Han's carotid artery. While he was in a coma at the moment, he was expected to make a full recovery. Jennifer's relatives were overjoyed at the news. She, on the other hand, grew noticeably distressed and claimed she needed to make a sudden call. Her uncle, Joanne Pan, offered her his cell phone, but Jennifer waved it away. She insisted on using a public phone. Uncle Joanne shrugged and gave her some change. Jennifer used it to call Daniel Wong on a hospital payphone and warn him that things had gone wrong. Little did Daniel know that he was already on the police's radar. An anonymous informant had revealed to authorities he was a former drug dealer. On the 10th of November, Daniel Wong was called in for questioning. He sat across from Detective Robert Milligan in the small interrogation room. Despite being brought in to talk about a murder case, Daniel seemed calm and level-headed. He answered every question respectfully, detailing all he knew about Jennifer and the Pan family. Perhaps he was too honest for his own good. He exposed several of Jennifer's lies that police weren't even aware of. He casually told detectives that when he was dating Jennifer, she lied to her parents about her love life, her college acceptance, even where she lived. He also let slip that he'd given Jennifer a second cell phone, one that she hadn't turned over on the night of the attack. Meanwhile, Daniel downplayed his own criminal past. He swore he had only ever been a small time weed dealer, not any kind of kingpin. He also proved that he'd worked the entire night of November 8th, so he couldn't have been one of the gunmen. With this airtight alibi, investigators were forced to release him. But while Daniel had absolved himself of guilt, he'd made things more difficult for Jennifer. Investigators now knew they were dealing with a prolific and practiced liar. Jennifer was brought in for a second interview the following morning. This time around, Sergeant Randy Slade forced her to recount every last detail of her night on November 8th, and it quickly became apparent that she didn't have her story straight. She frequently mixed up the order of events as well as the amounts of money the gunman had managed to grab from the house. Authorities then confronted Jennifer about her history of lying. She admitted to living a double life, but pointed out that forging her report cards didn't make her a murderer. Unable to procure a confession, authorities were forced to let Jennifer go. Despite their suspicions, she was the only credible witness available to give a statement. It was her word over Bick's dead body. That is, until the very next day. On November 12, 2010, 57-year-old Han Pan awoke from a coma to enter a real-life nightmare. His wife was dead and he had been shot in the face. Investigators came to his bedside to record his testimony. Unlike what Jennifer had told them about the three gunmen, Han described the attackers as two black men and one white man. He also revealed that while he and Bick were held hostage, Jennifer was allowed to roam the house completely unrestrained. In response, police forbade Jennifer from seeing Han without supervision. Relatives described how she grew erratic when she learned her father would survive his wounds. Han, of course, had misgivings of his own. He still remembered every moment of that horrific night. Unable to keep silent about his suspicions, Jennifer's uncle, Joanne, confronted her face to face. He demanded she explain the phone call she'd made on the hospital payphone. As usual, Jennifer misdirected her uncle with a new web of lies, but the walls were closing in and she knew it. In the early afternoon hours of November 22nd, 2010, Jennifer returned to the Markham police station for a third and final voluntary interview. Instead of being greeted by the warm and friendly Detective Slade, Detective Bill Gates sat across from her with a cold look. He offered no sympathy and no box of tissues. Unbeknownst to Jennifer, she was sitting across from the police force's truth verification expert. When prodded by Gates, Jennifer divulged more about her forbidden romance even explaining how the demise of her relationship with Daniel led to a failed suicide attempt. She said that she was miserable, but that she wasn't the only one in the household who had reached the end of their rope. She claimed that her parents slept in separate rooms and that she suspected her father of cheating on Vic. Perhaps, she offered, a spurned lover wanted him dead. Detective Gates saw through the smoke and mirrors, Jennifer had lied to the authorities from the very beginning. Now that they knew one of the murderers had been white, rather than black as she had initially claimed, they doubted everything Jennifer said. Gates told Jennifer that they already knew she was involved in the hit. It was only a matter of time before they could prove it. Finally, Jennifer broke. She whimpered and weakly asked, So... What happens to me? Detective Gates pressed harder, eager to know the whole story. But instead of admitting everything, Jennifer did what she did best, offer a half-truth. She said that she had ordered the hit, but the night had not gone according to plan. The attackers weren't supposed to kill her parents. They were supposed to kill her. Jennifer claimed that when she'd learned Daniel was dating a new woman, she spiraled into a deep depression. She no longer saw a reason to live. Desperate to end her life for good, she found the name and number of a man named Homeboy who could put her out of her misery. It was all just another lie. Fortunately, the police couldn't be fooled. On November 22, 2010, Jennifer Pan was arrested for first degree murder. Authorities finally had a suspect, motive, and partial testimony. Now they just needed to find the men who had actually pulled the trigger. Hoping that Jennifer kept in touch with the assailants, investigators filtered through her phone records. By the spring of 2011, they were able to piece together the major players. Undeleted text messages proved that Daniel Wong had been in on the attack all along. Lenford Crawford was the man Jennifer knew to be homeboy, he was also the one responsible for tasking David Malvogunam and Eric Cardi to commit murder. The third assailant, who Han had pointed out was a white male, was never identified. All five suspects were charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and attempted murder. Their trial began on March 19, 2014. When Jennifer took the stand in August of that year, She stayed true to her most recent version of events, stating that the hit had been meant for her and her alone. While she did try to have her father killed in the spring of 2010, she claimed that she changed her mind after the arrangement fell through. After attempting suicide, she sought a hitman to end her own life instead. She also said that she tried to call off the murder in the fall of 2010. By then, she'd supposedly forged a stronger relationship with her parents and was back on track towards gaining a real degree. But when she reached out to Homeboy to stop the hit, he demanded an $8,500 cancellation fee. Everything went south after that because she couldn't come up with the money in time. Despite Jennifer's complex and animated testimony, Crown prosecutors questioned her story. If the hit had really been meant for her, why would she hide that information from police during the initial two interviews? None of it made sense. The jury agreed. After 10 months on trial, 28 year old Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, Lenford Crawford, and David Malvoganam were all found guilty on December 13, 2014. The fifth defendant, Eric Carty, was tried at a later time. In early 2015, Jennifer, Daniel, Lenford and David received two concurrent life sentences with no chance of parole for 25 years. Eric received 18 years after admitting to some of his crimes but later died behind bars. Unfortunately, the third assailant was never apprehended. Jennifer currently resides at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. She will be up for parole in 2036, where perhaps her crocodile tears will convince the board that she deserves a second chance. One thing is for sure, only Jennifer Pan truly knows what happened that November night, and she'll never tell. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Jennifer Pan amongst the many sources we used, we found A Daughter's Deadly Deception by Jeremy Grimaldi extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Jane O, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Chelsea Wood and Mickey Taylor. I'm Laney Hobbs. listeners there's no better time to follow your heart and check out the hit spotify original from podcast blind dating every wednesday find out if personality alone is enough to make a love connection follow blind dating free on spotify or wherever you get your podcasts